Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. You're going. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. And our event today is Problems with the Jobs Act and How They Can Be Fixed. Our speaker today is Rutherford Campbell. He's the William T. Lafferty Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, uh, where from 1988 to 1993 he was dean. He is a graduate of Center College and a Coif graduate of the College of Law, where he served on the Kentucky Law Journal. In 1971, he received an LLM from Harvard Law School, and upon leaving Harvard, he began teaching law at the University of, of South Carolina, which he left in 1973 to return to the College of Law, uh, the Kentucky College of Law, as a teacher. Professor Campbell has practiced law as an associate at White and Case in New York City and as a partner with Stowe, Keenan, and Park in Lexington, Kentucky. He writes and teaches in securities, economics, and corporate law fields and has published numerous works. I'd like to bring to your attention and recommend that you read, if you have the chance, several publications that are relevant to our subject today, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll mention nine. Uh, in reverse chronological order, uh, he has written a, a piece called The Case for Federal Preemption of State Blue Sky Laws in a Heritage Foundation book, Prosperity Unleashed, Smarter Financial Regulation in 2017. That is available on our website. He has written uh, a number of law review articles uh, that are extremely uh, thoughtful and well-researched that are relevant to our subject today, including the SEC's Regulation A, Small Business Goes Under the Bus Again in 2016, the new regulation of small business capital formation, the impact, if any, of the Jobs Act in 2014, the wreck of Regulation D, the unintended and bad outcomes for the SEC's crown jewel exemptions, an article that I think is particularly uh, noteworthy and worth reading, Regulation A and the Jobs Act, a failure to resuscitate in 2012. Resale of securities, the new rules and the new approach of the SEC in 2009. Regulation A, a small business's search for moderate capital in 2006. And the overwhelming case for elimination of the integration doctrine under the Securities Act of 1933 in 01. And lastly, the insidious remnants of state rules respecting capital formation in 2000. Uh, Professor Campbell is going to give us some remarks and, and has uh, some tables that will be presented on the screen. And afterwards, we'll have a, a fairly informal discussion um, uh, with Q&A. And uh, I would ask that uh, when we do the Q&A uh, portion of, of 
the event that uh, you wait for the mic and, and identify yourself and your institutional affiliation. Professor Campbell. Think so. Tap it and see if it. Got it. Okay. Let me just start by doing a sort of some definitional terms and 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 um, sort of foundation for 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 my remarks. Uh, as David said, I, I'll probably try to go about twenty five minutes or so, and uh, then we can do Q and A at at that point. I think David, that's about the yeah, that's time you suggested. Uh, let me first of all d define what, what I mean by small business. As, as David says, my, my research has, has generally been uh, – well, it's been around, but, but small business capital formation has occupied my attention a lot. Small businesses. I typically use the, 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 the SBA, the, the Small Business Administration, categories that, that they historically have used. So they, they the two that interest me is uh, less than – less than 20 employees. Now, th these are obviously very, very small firms, uh, but they have a big impact on the national economy. They account for less than 20 employees. They account for about 18 percent historically, something slightly less than 20 of total employment in the United States. So those are huge numbers if, if you think about that. If you go up to 100 employees, that level down, which would include the 20, they account for something over 35% of all employees in, in the United States. So again, those are just huge numbers with regard to the impact that, that these businesses have. They suffer from what I refer to generally as structural and economic uh, impediments when, when they try to access external capital. Everybody needs external capital. So these guys are always, you know, trying to, trying to find financing for, for their operations. Um, structurally, uh, two related issues are, are difficult for them. One is our, our relative offering costs. Relative offering costs are, are what uh, foreclose people from the market. An offering of $100,000, if in fact the transaction fees, the offering fees, the costs, lawyers, etc., uh, are $100,000, the deal doesn't get done. If the total amount is $50 million, the deal gets done. You, relative, it's relative, not absolute offering costs that foreclose people from, from the market. Related to that, structural economic impediments, uh, is the absence of financial intermediation. Now, what we're talking about there are sort of in street terms, brokers to sell your deals, underwriters or whatever to sell your deals. The deals simply are too small to support the fees necessary for the brokers and, and those intermediaries to, 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 to get involved. What has uh, interested me are the legal impediments that, that society poses on top of these structural impediments for small businesses. Here principally we are looking at securities rules uh, and and principally registration problems or registration requirements. As you probably know, in order to sell securities, you either have to register or find exemptions from those registration requirements. These are both state and federal registration requirements. So they operate independently from one another and under, under the federalism, uh, federalism regime, satisfying Ohio's registration requirements, state blue sky laws, does not mean you've satisfied Indiana's or Fed's and vice versa. 
So these companies are facing, you know, basically 53 or 4 registration requirements uh, if, if they sell broadly. That includes the District of Columbia and, 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 our, um, and our states as well, uh, District of Columbia and our territories and states as well. Another observation uh, if, if small companies are always looking for exemptions from registration, uh, both state and federal have exemption from the registration re- requirement. Uh, for decades, we had no we, we, we had no data available on this. So guys like me were writing these law review articles and you know saying that exit and working wide and working. We were relying pretty much on our own experience in practice from having put deals together, but there was no data available. Uh, with the advent of internet technology, uh, technology uh, data retrieval systems at all, we began to be able to get data about what was and was not working for small businesses. Now, we first were able to, to penetrate the Regulation D offerings and see the extent to which Regulation D was actually being used by by, um, by issuers generally and specifically by small business issuers. And Regulation D, sort of the old-fashioned private placement stuff, it is an exemption from registration sort of based upon uh, the, the, the extent to which um, all three purchasers need protection that is afforded by the registration requirements. So what, when we lifted the hood, what we found there was we were pretty surprised that Regulation D simply was not being utilized in the way it was attend- intended uh, by the commission – when they promulgated regulation, regulation D. So regulation D had three exemptions, offerings of up to one million bucks, offering up to five million dollars, and offerings of any amount. Rule 504, 505, and 506. And what we, when, when we got the data, you know, we sort of looked at it and we said, well, this isn't working at all because, for example, all of the small offerings, a million dollars or less, were migrating up and taking on Rule 506 obligations, which are more, and 80% of these small offerings weren't being being offered under Regulation D, under 504, but rather migrating up to 506, which had more stringent disclosure, et cetera, requirements for, for the exemption to be, to be available. So um, we, we, we began to figure this out. Now, the data retrieval systems are, are very good at this point. Uh, I use a mosa- I'm not a salesman for Mosaic website, but, but I use the Mosaic website in, in, in retrieving data, and, and they are very user-friendly. And I was, I was dealing with 27,000 Reg D filings, uh, which I was able to, to slice and dice and get a lot of very good information from by pulling them down on Mosaic. These are, the, 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 this is new that, that we're able to do this. So, you know, guys like me who, who write law review articles can literally look online for a lot, in a lot of instances and see that X is or is not working. Now, that's what I've done with with the Jobs Act, which, which we will get to in just a moment, because I've got data on the extent to which the Jobs Act is working for small businesses, and I will get to that in just a moment. <clears throat> uh, just a <clears throat> excuse me, just a uh, sort of a quick historical look. Um, small business impediments, especially for small business, uh, in prior to 1933. 
there were state blue sky laws in place, looking like the 33 Act, requiring people selling in these individual states to comply with state registration requirements. 1933, when the the Securities Act was first passed, there was no preemption of state authority. So what you wind up with is obligations if you do a national offering. You wind up with sort of all state blue sky laws that you've got to comply with in D.C., of course, all state blue sky laws and federal federal uh, registration requirements as well. So coming forward after 1933, that's what people had to deal with, and, and it, was a, it was a bloody mess. Uh, no one actually thought too much about that and, and all these problems really – I'm being a bit unfair to the SEC. There were some small company initiatives uh, during that that next 40 or 50 years, but they did not work very well at all. So the SEC couldn't quite – they were trying, but they couldn't quite get it right to help small small issuers. So you you come forward and work through that in 1996 – uh, Congress enacted the National Securities Market Improvement Act, and what that did was it preempted state registration authority uh, over certain types of offerings made by companies, issuers small and large. It offered, frankly, very little to small companies who are the ones who needed it the most uh, the only thing it really did for, really for, for sort of traditional meat and potatoes kinds of offerings, uh, was that it preempted state authority over Rule 506 offerings. That's really all it did. There were some other things, but they were not, frankly, very, very effective. So federal offerings under Rule 506 then are exempt from, from state reg- registrations. Uh, that still left small issuers out there struggling because 506.1 was actually designed for larger companies, larger offerings, unlimited in size. And the the, the real sort of core of, of what small issuers were looking at in, in that situation were – I'm just going to pop these out. I hope you all generally know what these are. Five, rule 506, Rule 505, private placements on the common law of 4A2, uh, Regulation A offerings, all these sort of the, the real core of the way where a small issuer ought to go, those were still subject to state registration requirements. You pop something up on your internet and make an offering via, via your internet and you've got 53 sets of individual offering uh, state regimes you've got to comply with, state and federal regimes in total. So it, it was very interesting and, and sort of as a political matter. I was involved in, in, in congressional testimony at that point, and it was sort of a public choice feast up there because uh, large groups with not many uh, with not many participants in the large groups invest um, uh, mutual funds, for example. State regulators turned out to be a, a very powerful group. They basically got what they wanted, but the large group, which is small issuers, essentially got almost nothing out out, out of NISME. I mean, it was a public choice feast up up there. So anyway, we co- we we come out of that. And 
And um, small companies are still struggling at that point. So I, I guess at that point, let, let me take us forward to what the JOBS Act was trying to do and, in fact, data to show you what jobs has and, 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 and has, not, has not done. So jobs was enacted in 2012, and, and it required uh, regulatory implementation. What I have focused on are Titles 2, 3, and 4 of the Jobs Act. Uh, and so what I would propose to do is to, to um, take you through each of those and give you some data about the extent to which people are actually using these new exemptions, federal exemptions from registration on this. So what, what, what we've got to go into this with is an understanding that small issuers, the structural and legal impediments that small issuers operate under and keep in mind the, the I'm, I'm, I'll be pejorative, but but indulge me. The pernicious effect of state regulation on small business capital formation. So hopefully set that up with, with some introductory remarks. So so let, let me take you through this. Uh, make some comments about what is happening with small businesses after jobs, the extent to which they are using these three titles that really, at least two of which were really designed specifically for small business. Indeed, one of the titles is, is called small company capital formation. So th this is what they were supposed to be about. Let me start with Title Three of, of the Jobs Act. Uh, what what Title Three of the Jobs Act does is it allows issuers, large or small, using Rule 506 to make broad solicitations for investors. Now, let me let me explain that just just a moment. Um, Rule 506 provided, which is part of Regulation D, provided an exemption from registration, unlimited in size generally predicated upon disclosures to offering circulars to be provided to potential investors and generally prohibiting general advertising of this. So you couldn't do general broad offers, broad solicitation for external, for external capital. Could not do that. So, you know, I, I did a number of these kinds of deals and you had to dance around. You, you, you know, you were limited to some number of practically some number of offerees, practically, you know, public, can't do public stuff, some number of offerees and you had to be careful about them, whatever. And, um, so what the, 506 predicated upon not doing public offerings, not doing general advertising of your deals. Uh, it also required that purchasers either be accredited, accredited investors. Let me define that because that term is going to come back up. Fundamentally, wealthy people, accredited investors, wealthy people, insiders, and institutions. So those are your accredited investors. So no general advertising in, in this. Uh, 
uh, and you had to provide information or limit your offering to accredited investors, people who can Olingo fend for themselves. They don't need the protection. You know, institutions don't need don't need the protection. They can bargain for investment information. So the the one of the problems with five oh six was you could not solicit broadly for investors and then determine uh, whether or not they met the purchaser requirements, which is give them information, make them accredited, or whatever. So it 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 you, you couldn't do broad solicitations. Uh, now that never made any sense as a policy matter, because the way five oh six works is solicit broadly. I'm sorry. You cannot solicit broadly, but the way 506 now works is you can solicit broadly, but your investor protection mechanisms, disclosure, accredited status is applied at the purchase level. So people, you send your, send your message out widely. People say, we want in, we would like to, we would like to buy in, into this. Now you can solicit broadly, and then you can one of those people out and say, "Sorry, you you, you don't meet the accredited status uh, in in this situation, so you can't do that." Only accredited people could invest in that situation after uh, the Jobs Act Title III. And again, guys, that makes perfect sense because solicit broadly, and then. Uh, and and then make the determination of whether they can purchase before the purchase occurs. People who are not hurt, who can't meet those requirements, people who are able to meet those requirements are protected by the characteristics that society has determined makes sense. Very, very rational thing, very, very rational thing to do. Um, what I did... Let me. I think this is apparent. I think this is good. I think there's no harm in broad solicitation, especially when you impose the investor requirements at purchaser level. So people who don't meet it, they're not hurt. People who do meet it and can purchase, we've determined by by the society's determined they're okay. They don't need any special protection. We give an exemption from registration in in that situation. Now, what I was trying to do was looking at Title II and see the extent to which uh, it actually benefited small businesses looking for capital. Uh, these data, first shot at my clicker, and it works. Um, the, is there a pointer on this thing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Um, he, here's, he, here's what I did. Uh, this, is, this is not... This is soft data. Uh, I, I, I was able to make certain conclusions in my mind as a result of this, uh, but but it is it is soft data. To me, this data indicates that that 506 is efficient and that 506 uh, allowing broad solicitations, in fact, is helping small businesses. But the data is soft. So here's what I did uh, up here. Up here uh, and probably right, right there is is what we should look at. I looked at the period right before 506C uh, allowing broad solicitation became available. 
um, I looked at the number of small offerings that actually relied on 506, that actually migrated from the, uh, the other rules to 506. And, and I compared that to the extent of migration after Rule 506C was adopted, allowing broad solicitations. Now, my thought was, uh, if in fact I see more small business offerings relying on 506, that would at least suggest that 506C is helping small businesses. So there, all right, so let me tell you about these data. Then if you start right there, that is the pre-506C period. And 92%, if you look at that number, whoa, what did I do? Okay. Uh, if, if you look at, let me back up. Yeah. If you, if you look at that number right there, 92% of all offerings, small offerings under Regulation D were using 506 before. After 506C is adopted, allowing broad solicitations, if you just look at, can you guys see this down, that number down there? You got, you have 94% of these small offerings migrating. Now that's not huge, obviously, but it suggests maybe that 506C has benefited small issuers. What, what is also important here is the absolute number, but this is soft data as well. Prior to, in the 25-month period before um, before Regulation 506C, you had 19,000 and some change up there uh, of migrations. This is actual numbers opposed to percentage. If you compare that down here at the bottom, if you guys can see that, you've got 23,000 and some change uh, in the 25-month period after. So you've got more absolute numbers. You've got four or 5,000 additional in absolute numbers. The problem, the softness there is uh, Regulation 506 exemptions are being more and more used all the time. So the, the connection is not crisp there. Uh, it may be that there are other reasons rather than the, uh, allowing broad solicitation that, that, that has helped in, the, in this situation. I, I would still make two observations. One, 506C is a very good move by the commission uh, because it allows all companies to gain efficiencies uh, in soliciting for external capital because you can solicit broadly and then comply with the, with the requirements at the purchase stage. Secondly, there, there are some in, in suggestions at least that small business are capitalizing on this when you look at these numbers. That's about as good as I could do with, with, with empirical, with, with empirical work in, in that situation. I'm a huge fan of 506C allowing broad solicitation, imposing the investor protection at the point of sale. I hope that is a, a regime of structure that the commission goes to otherwise because it is a very, very sensible way to, 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 for, to, to, to use your exemptions in, in that situation. Okay. So, I would I would say that 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 we 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 have a, a modest success there with with that one. Now after that it gets a little more bleak. Title three provides an exemption from registration for crowdfunding. 
So let me say a word about about crowdfunding. Crowdfunding, uh, the exemption for crowdfunding in uh, that is a result of Title Three. Uh, crowdfunding allows. Uh, the, I'll use the numbers as originally adopted. They may have changed just a bit. Crowdfunding allowed issuers to sell up to a million dollars in securities. They limited the amount that any investor could make into the crowdfunding offering. Uh, any place from from sort of depending upon the on the situation, between two thousand and a hundred thousand bucks uh, is a, is any investor. That's as much as you can limit in that. It is predicated upon posting your offering information with a third-party website, uh, portal of, of, of website of, of, of some sort. Now, when you do that, you cannot do any other advertising, essentially, as a result of that. So you got to just post it, and, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of, kind of situation. You, 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 you can't... You can't, you know, run an own advertising sales campaign that, that you normally would run in trying to sell securities in, in that situation. Crowdfunding also preempts state authority over registration. That's a big deal in that situation now. Uh, so that obviously is designed for small issuers. So what I try to do with the data is determine the extent to which, uh, in fact, it is being used. So, uh, when you file, when, when you do a crowdfunding offering, you initially have to file a Form C with the commission. So, th- and, and, and in your Form C, you've got your investment information, uh, that you're going to post on the website. And so you file all that with the commission. Now, um, in the, I'm, I'm running, let me see which one that is. I'm, I'm running, 20, if my glasses will tell me, I think about a 23-month period immediately or 24-month period immediately after the crowdfunding. Now, as you look at these, please remember, there are more than 5 million small businesses out there, businesses with less than 20 employees. Um, there are probably 5.5 million of businesses out there with employees of less excuse me, with less than 100 employees. So these are accounting for, again, an enormous amount of economic activity in, in, this, in this country. Crowdfunding was designed to help those 5 million-plus businesses access external capital. So what I did was I looked at the Form Cs, the, the initial documents you got to file saying we're doing a crowdfunding that are filed with the SEC. And you, you can see that I did it on, um, again, let me find my clicker. So I did it there, the total of the 24 months or so. So you've got 867. I did it then on a 12-month basis. I just, uh, you know, figured out how many on average in a 12-month period. And the one I, I sort of hit on more is this one right there. The average number of filings per month. I just use that to sort of look at the extent to which these five million plus are using it. It's just not working. It is. It is. It is just not working at all. There, and, and modestly, I can say, uh, it, it's, it's simply not simply not working in, in that situation. Now, there's it, been some other data I saw that shows that 
inception to roughly two months ago, crowdfunding raised about $100 million, as opposed to yeah. trillions in Reg D. Uh, in 2017, uh, the study shows that it raised $49 million total for the whole year. Yeah. And interesting data, I keep rubbing my own personal nose in five million businesses out there that, that you know, that, that need external capital in that. And also you can compare it, as I, as I will later on, <clears throat> to, um, to, to the, the use of Regulation D, and I'll, I'll give you some data on that in a bit. I mean, it, Regulation D, a lot of activity under Regulation D, and, and they're in the thousands during this time period as opposed to that. Uh, what 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 I also did then was look at. Let me make sure I'm doing this right. Uh, the, in crowdfunding, you also have to file a form CU, and that is. Let me make sure I say this right. You got to file a form CU five days after reaching your target, or five days after the offering deadline. So you basically got to file these in successful crowdfunding offerings, you know, one that are at least progressing in that case. So when you look at the CUs and you do your monthly, you've only got 14 per month in, in, in CUs. Now, David, that was interesting numbers that you gave about crowdfunding may be doing a bit better at, at this point. In, in, in Although I guess it's been well over two years at this yeah. point. So I, I've got 24 months of data, uh, or 23 months of data uh, after crowd after crowdfunding. Uh, it created enormous amount of interest, tremendous amount of coverage of it. I had a, I had my research assistant look at the number of crowdfunding articles that were written as it was going through the approval process. He found something like a hundred articles in law reviews and other publications that had been written about about crowdfunding. It was really, uh, you know, hopefully, we were all hoping would, would, would really take off. And again, it's a, it's certainly not an overstatement to say that, that, that people have been disappointed about this. Now, the problems with crowdfunding, uh, why, it, why it is not working, I, I thought were fairly apparent on the front end. I often guess wrong about things. Uh, but uh, but this one I, I guess I guess correctly about. Um, uh, watch my time here. Um, the crowdfunding really foundered or has foundered so far, in my opinion, uh, for 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 two reasons. Uh, one is the limitation on any sort of selling activities other than the posting. Now that and and it gets it, it gets tied up with with a very technical um, very technical um, um, regime theory, the integration rules, which are really nasty bunch of little rules that seem like they shouldn't be. Um, so you cannot issue or engage in any advertising or sort of normal tra you know, traditional ways of selling securities. You can't do that during, during this time period. So what that means is that you've really got to choose either do a crowdfunding offering and sit quietly or forget about crowdfunding and go out and do a Reg D offering, for example, 506, and you know meet with your potential investors, call them the way securities are not normally sold. You cannot split a single offering, 
half crowdfunding and half or whatever percentage and half 506. That uh, if, if they are part of the same issue, they would be collapsed under the integration concept and you would have destroyed both exemptions in, in those situations. You cannot split a single offering into two separate separate tranches. You cannot do that if it is part of the same offering or issue. Now that's nasty, and this integration, this integration, which makes no sense at all, by the way, but it, it is. I heard a commissioner once say it's foundational. I almost had to jump up and say it's foundational, but it's stupid. Uh, but but it, it it is it it is out there. Now, the interesting thing here is the commission could have in its adopting uh, in, in, in the regulation have had a, a, an integration safe harbor as a regulation there. They've done that in other types of exemptions. What they, what they did, however, was on – I think it's on page 337 of the release – crowdfunding release, which I think went about five or 600 pages. I can't remember. It was, it was just... It was 600 pages. 600, okay. David, David's got a good memory. Uh, they said, we're providing guidance that integration doesn't apply. As long as you meet the crowdfunding and the 506, integration doesn't apply. The problem with that is that it hadn't gone through the regulatory process. It is not a regulation in that. So if you don't act via regulation, if I'm the lawyer in that situation, I say we revert to the common law. And under common law, if you have a 506 and a crowdfunding going at the same time, more likely than not, common law regime would integrate those. So if I'm writing an opinion letter or if I'm I'm a lawyer in that situation, I got my malpractice there back there and my partners, Beamers and Holmes, you know, on the line on this thing – I'm going to be real reluctant to 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 do that. I, I frankly wouldn't do it. I, I would tell my client to go to go somewhere else. Guidance simply would not satisfy me that the old integration concepts don't apply. They had the authority to do that. They did it in Regulation D, the intrastate exemption o, o, over periods of time. They needed to drop in two right two way regulatory integration safe harbor, which they could have done, and 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 they simply didn't do it. So I, my view is that that, that 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 is a real sticky wicket there uh, and I think is a major part of what the inability to use traditional sales techniques in connection with a 506, excuse me, a crowdfunding, I think is, is, is bad. It's bad. I think it's part of it. The other reason, in my view, that crowdfunding foundered or is foundering uh, are are the disclosure requirements? Uh, there are what I call ex ante disclosure requirements and filing requirements when you sell. That's your form C, and then also you pick up sort of the equivalent of periodic reporting requirements. You can't pick up uh, periodic reporting requirements of the kind that you get under the Thirty Four Act, and those can go on for quite a time time depending upon the situation. So, you know, you, you got a million dollars and you, you're going to pick up uh, reporting requirements, you know, in the future uh, for, you know, for an, un, for an extended period of time. Transaction costs are going to go up in that situation. Uh, so that's the problem. 
these generally are fixable if the commission wanted were, were willing to do that. Uh, they could drop in a two-way safe harbor provision. Uh, they could come back and, and, and they ought to absolutely eliminate the ex-post periodic reporting requirements from, from this. We've got 34 Act requirements on the book that says if you've got 500 shareholders or 2,000 shareholders and 10 million bucks in assets, you, you, you got to do periodic reporting, 10Ks, 10Qs, and all that stuff. I, I don't, you know, why they saddle those onto, on, onto crowdfunding, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. There are some sort of technical administrative law provisions here because part of these rules are statutory. So the commission would need to, if they were inclined to work here, would need to identify the statutes that need to be amended to the extent there are some and work with Congress. That's another thing I think the commission should do here is sort of take the bully pulpit here, if I'm not using the wrong metaphor, and and figure out what it takes. They can do most of it here to, to clear these problems up. To the extent they need to work with Congress, I think I think they ought to work with Congress. I mean, I think that's what an administrative agency ought to do in, in, these, in, in this situation. I do not have much hope for crowdfunding uh, even I think you're showing a bit more you, the data you said a bit more usage. I do not have much hope for that for it helping the five million or so small businesses out there. It, it just, you know, it was based upon the notion that posting w- it is an efficient way to sell securities. I think that is wrong. I just don't think you you you, you can do that. Technology is good for running airlines and and providing data retrieval systems. Uh, as a way to to sell securities by neutral postings, it, it, I don't think it works. It, it can be fixed. Um, the other one, I guess, and I am probably running over a bit. Title Four is Regulation A plus exemption. Uh, that is an exemption from registration that is modeled on the pre-existing old Reg, reg A Regulation A exemption. Uh, the way that works is that the it, it's sort of a short form registration or a mini registration, although it's not too many actually. Uh, the exemption requires the issuer to file um, a form one A with the commission and to provide disclosure information uh, in an offering circular to all offerees and, and purchasers um, in, in, in the regime. It's really working uh, mechanically very much like a registered requ- registration requirement, um, but it, it is an exemption, and it says issue, get together an offering circular, file it with the commission, provide that to, to the, to the uh, offering purchasers, uh, and you, you have an exemption. So the idea was always to have – Smaller offerings with less disclosure and filing requirements than than um, than than a full blown registration in in that situation. Um, they're tier one, tier two. Let me define these. Tier one offerings up to twenty million dollars. Now that's your small offering. That, that will be your smaller issuers, the small offerings. Uh, up to $50 million is referred to as a Tier 2 offering. Uh, the requirements are in, in a lot of ways similar, but, 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 but they are different in some sort of critical ways. Tier 1 offerings requires less disclosure 
That's the big ticket cost item for small issuers. Requires less disclosure and less filing than Tier 2. Now, the idea there is that Tier 2, if you're in the $50 million range, you can afford to make more disclosures. It's not going to blow your deal, relative offering costs. So Tier 2 requires less disclosure than, than I'm sorry, Tier 2 requires big ones, requires more disclosure than, than the Tier 1. Tier 2 also preempts state registration authority. That's always a huge deal. Uh, the commission had full authority to, to deal with preemption. They had, they had delegated authority to, to deal with this. They, they, they had trouble with the preemption issue. There's a 30 years of history here, which I shan't go into. Uh, and, and so they, they, they preempted authority under tier two, big guys, but not under tier one. So if you look at the data, if we look at the data here, Tables five, five through eight. Um, I, I show about thirty-three months of data in, in in here, and so again, if we just focus on on the, the monthly average here, five million businesses out there, uh, there, there are only eleven per month is what is what the average is that that you're getting uh, for 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 the uh, regulation A plus. How many of these were qualified? In other words, approved by the commission. I, I don't have that. In, I, I don't have that data, but 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 um, I, I do not have that that data. I couldn't get that very easily, David. In, in in the mosaic thing that I was running, I could not actually find something that was reported that that that, that had that. Now there, it may be there, and I we, we couldn't we couldn't uncover it. Okay, but I, I, what I did was there, there can't be more qualified than there were filed. So, so, so what, what, what we did was we then sliced and diced that information. And so in, in tables six through eight, which I'm going to get to, um, what I did in, in table six was I separated these into tier one and tier two. So tier one is the smaller offerings. That's the people that I'm most interested in. These five, these five million businesses that are so important to the economy. You, one would think that they would use tier one there. So I found 141 um, total during that during that that time period. And but the problem is that these small businesses will migrate from tier one to tier two, picking up additional disclosure requirements to get rid of the states. You simply cannot do broad solicitation if the states are involved because you've got 53 then jurisdictions, idiosyncratic uh, registration requirements, whatever in the states. It, it just swamps, the transactional cost swamps that. So then in Table 7, I, I, I identified that there were 97 offerings of less than $20 million that, 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 that went to Tier 2. Again, it sounds crazy, but that solved their state problems. So then what I did in, in, uh, in Table 8 was uh, I, I combined 
the migration with the tier one during the time period, because those are the small guys. That's your 20 million or less total, those that migrated and those that did not. So I wind up with an average of seven per month, Form C's filed for offerings of less than 20 million bucks. I'm, I'm nibbling around the edges, guys, because even the, the totals show you that this one is not working at all. But when you drill down and really see the small offerings per month of seven uh, dur- during a, that 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 thirty-three uh, month period, then, then you can see that it's that again it just just not working. Problems while they're not working. The big one. The failure of the commission to preempt state authority over tier one offerings. So secondary sales of tier two. And the secondary sales of tier two. Correct. Correct. So the failure to preempt. Now, again, there are 30 years of of, of wonderful stories here about this. Uh, the the state briefly the state regulators have always been willing to get right in the face of the commission of of the SEC. They ultimately wound up literally. I'm not making this up. Suing the the the, the SEC for for preempting state authority over tier two offerings, claiming that that exceeded their delegated authority. They were pretty roughly treated by the D.C. Circuit in that, and they lost that, which it was just it was a lose-lose situation in the Lindeen situation. And, and they, they, they lost that. I, I was never convinced that they thought they had any uh, chance of, 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 of winning that. If, if they'd have read the regulation, they would have found they did not. But I don't think they ever thought they could. I think it was a shot across the bow for, for these guys. I think it was – they're tough, those state guys are. And I think it was just showing you that we're in your face. Every time you do something we don't like, we're going to drag you into federal court. Slow down, build up expenses for you guys to do this so you will not preempt. I always thought it was more that than any, than any, than any hope that they could actually get anything as a result of that. Uh, the other basis for the, the problem is the level of disclosure uh, in, in these, in these uh, Tier 4 Regulation A+. Uh, there are <clears throat> ex ante uh, financial disclosures and narrative disclosures that are really way too much, especially for small offerings in uh, under Regulation D. There can be ex post uh, periodic reporting requirements as well, which drive up the cost. Generally, those are not required in Tier 2s. They are in Tier 1s. But notice small businesses are migrating to Tier 2, so they're picking that up as well. Um, the, the commission could, could can, again, can deal with this. Uh, they, they don't have to worry about the Congress really too much in this case because uh, their delegating authority was very, very broad in, in this situation. They seriously need to scale this, and I think they need to scale at the $1 million level, have a reg – a plus regime for a million or less and scale at the five million, another bit more disclosure at the five million and then o- over that, you know, you get up, you get up above that. And, 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 and they can, they can do this. It is interesting 
what the commission thought here because regulation A tier one has almost exactly the same requirements that, that the pre-jobs regulation A had. Almost exactly the same. Regulate, old regulation A prior to jobs was getting essentially no business. Nobody was using old regulation A. And again, I've got data on that which I'm not presenting. Uh, and I, 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 I'm in the process of writing a law review article on all this, and, and I say, you know, as a matter of levity, uh, when the commission did exactly the same thing with Tier 1 as the old failed Regulation A, I, I was reminded of the old saw about the definition of uh, of insanity, uh, engaging in the same conduct and expecting a different outcome. I mean, the, the, these problems were pretty apparent in, in, in this. So I think that's it. Uh, I, I, th- these are not working. I'm a big Jobs Act fan in that I think it offers, properly implemented, I think it offers three good paths to ec- external capital. Uh, I think crowdfunding will never be what we hoped it would be on the front end. You can't sell securities that way, but you could open that up, and I think crowdfunding could become something like a shelf registration for small companies. Put a million bucks on the shelf, continuous offering, at the same time do your 506, do do, do, do whatever. I think it might work pretty well that way, but you got to let people do these offerings at, at the same time. So Great. I'm exceeding well, my time. I'm much. sorry, and, David. And we'll move on to questions. I know... Jonathan, you ha- you had a question. Uh, th- thank you very much, uh, Professor Campbell, and thank you for your. your if work. you could just identify yourself and sure, sure. Uh, my name is Jonathan Cohen. I'm president and CEO of uh, 2020 Gene Systems. Last year, we did a successful Reg CF. We raised the the maximum 1.06 million. And we are now in the midst of a Reg A offering raised over three million to date. Uh, we'll likely raise close to five million by year end. Um, we're a biotech company, life science companies. We we may very well be uh, the most successful biotech company in the United States when it comes to equity crowdfunding. Um, I agreed with many of your points, although I do respectfully disagree with the, your fundamental premise that that. This type of offering over the internet doesn't work. It works, in my view, better than anything else. I have done traditional angel investing. We have a corporate VC. I've raised money from family offices. There is nothing like this. You can literally raise money in your pajamas. You, you go to bed at night, you wake up and you have capital. And it allows entrepreneurs to focus on their business and to bring in customers. That's the other thing that are both investors and, and consumers. So this works better than anything else, in my view. And too, far, far too few companies are doing it. And that is, while I think a lot of work needs to be done by the SEC, perhaps some from Congress, and I think you've identified many of them, the fundamental problem is too few quality companies, and when I say quality, companies with growth potential uh, are trying equity crowdfunding of, of any of its flavors um, if you look at the tip, these typical equity crowdfunding platforms, there's a tremendous oversupply of what I would call lifestyle companies. Breweries and distilleries seem to be uh, 
50% or more. And how many of those will become billion dollar companies? I mean, realistically. So the crowd recognizes that and, and, and they're not seeing quality companies. So they're not putting as much money, but they want to non accredited investors, which are the vast majority of Americans really want to be able to invest in IPO companies. And it works, but it needs to get better. And I'll just take, t- touch on two points that you made. From my experience, the process was harder than it should have been, although I do give credit. I think the SEC staff did a good, very good job uh, reviewing our offerings. I think they commented where appropriate and moved as quickly as they could. But fundamentally, the, th- the killer, in my view, was the audit. Um, we did a review, financial review for Reg CF or crowdfunding. That's that's okay, hard but okay. But when but but when we graduated to that full audit, it was it was grueling. And for small companies that have a handful of employees, limited revenue and so forth, it's totally unnecessary. I think until a company raises five million, they should be limited. The limit should be they should only need to do a review. After you raise five billion, perhaps then a full audit makes sense. So that one thing, in my view, would go a long way uh, to uh, uh, to improving uh, improving the pro- process. Um, and beyond that, I think you mentioned bully pulpit. I think the the federal government, SEC, even SBA, and others should be promoting this. Just too many people too many people don't know about it, both on the investor side and the issuer side. So I think. Getting the word out would go a long way toward encouraging more companies to do it and then having more platforms. We need to have more platforms and then having more investors. So those are my perspectives. Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, Let me just – I don't think we disagree at all. Um, First of all, I think crowdfunding – now, again, I'm thinking technical crowdfunding within Title III of of that. I think that makes sense and I think you can – one can sell securities that way. Uh, what, what I think that the, the, these numbers are just terrible. And, and what I think is happening there is that, is that issuers with, with good lawyers are looking at this and they're saying, look guys, you got to choose to meet that crowdfunding exemption. You've either got to do crowdfunding or you've got to do your more traditional kind of offering. You can't do both at the same time because of the integration doctrine. And secondly, I think they are looking at the exact kind of things you're, you're thinking about there, which is the, the audit. Less than five million bucks, you do not have to have an audit for a crowd, technical crowdfunding disclosure. Over five million, you do. Now, that, that's, I would say that's not a good rule, guys, because you got your internal numbers being generated by, by your own CFO. You got liability for those and, you know, buyer beware in that situation. Put a big stamp on that thing and say these are unaudited numbers. This is a small – the thing he's talking about is exactly right. It is the relative transaction cost. So if you pay 100000 bucks for an audit or whatever it may cost you for the first time, depending on your company, 100000 bucks in a $1 million offering is 10% just for your audit. I mean, you, you're pretty much out of the game at, 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 at that point. You and I do not disagree. It's just that, that these numbers are overwhelming that it is not being utilized the way it should. And what you're doing is identifying the part of the reasons that it's not. Just, uh, one quick thought. The corporate on the audit requirement for tier three crowdfunding between 500,000 and a million dollars is Congress. 
Congress did that. The SEC can't undo it, so we need to get a statutory fix. And and that and that's that's my point too. I mean, I, I, I don't know enough about inside the Beltway to, to to know how well these these agencies actually will interface with Congress. But I mean, the, the administrative model is, is is just that that that's exactly some what of them are, are quite aggressive. The SEC tends to be very hands off in terms of making legislative recommendations. This gentleman back here has a question. Uh, my name is Kevin Fagan. I'm a musician and uh, former member of the National Association for the Self-Employed and, and uh, owner and operator of a profitable small business in the music industry. Um, speaking of things that aren't covered as much, um, Silicon Valley and their venture capital has been covered a ton in the media, but uh, regional, uh, smaller um Venture capital and private <laughs> equity firms are are rarely covered uh, in the national media, at least. So I'm wondering if you can comment on the issues pertaining to those smaller venture capital and private equity firms. First of all, let me say that 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 I attended Berkeley School of Music in Boston. So one musician talking to another musician here. I'm a guitar player. I don't know what. Uh, okay, uh, uh, but but let me now go back to the subject at hand. Uh, you, you are exactly correct, and and I think we have too much been focused. We the, the, these rules have been too much focused on. I hope I'm not offending anyone here, but brilliant geeks working in a garage in Silicon Valley. I grew up in a town of 500 people in the Appalachian area of Eastern Kentucky. My father had a little drugstore in there. There was timbering going on. There was truck mining going on at that point. The bank is is there. And that these kinds of companies that are vital to these small communities are not being represented properly in outcomes in, in these situations. You are preaching to the choir on this because I think that has caused us to do misregulations of a lot of stuff. We are all looking at the next billion-dollar app and you know, giving some seed money so so these brilliant people can can do this, and we'll have an extra app on our iPhone. Uh, I, sh- I shan't go on and on about that. You're exactly correct. And and if you look at the SBA numbers, they break this. They break uh, that those employment numbers down to various um, industry groups, uh, and 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 they show you that we're talking about. Family farms, we're talking about restaurants in my little hometown of Hyden, Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky. We're talking about the bank there, which has assets of just barely over a hundred million bucks. I mean, it's tiny. These companies that are incredibly important to small communities, they get the short shrift. Let me ask you a question related to that subject. I mean, obviously you have companies like Jonathan's who's has tremendous growth potential, but you also have small businesses and these small communities that need capital. And they're usually uh, uh, either family-owned or owned by a few closely held persons. They're not really going to be interested in selling equity. But they would be interested in being able to borrow, particularly at rates perhaps better than than what the banks can offer. And that raises the whole question of peer-to-peer lending. And as you may recall, and for the benefit of the audience, there's – Prosper and Lending Club do peer-to-peer lending to individuals. When they started out, they tried to do it for small businesses, but the SEC jumped them and said that a $10,000 loan is going to require a registration statement. Well, the SEC estimates that it costs about $2.5 million to do a registration statement. 
you're not going to spend $2.5 million to get a $10,000 loan. In other words, they killed the peer-to-peer lending to small businesses. It struck me that one way perhaps of of uh, giving rebirth to peer-to-peer lending to small businesses where consumers via the Internet can lend money to uh, a, a business a hardware store in Kentucky uh, is to change Title III and create a special category of peer-to-peer debt security uh, rather than equity security and then back off considerably on the continuing disclosure requirements and have them absolutely terminate once the debt's been satisfied. And it, 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 and I don't know what you, what you think of that kind of proposal or if you thought about ways to uh, simplify Title III or otherwise encourage peer-to-peer lending for small firms. David, again, with a with a bit of humor here, uh, I'm like when the SEC talks at, at symposiums. I, I need to uh, make adequate disclosures here about you. I'm on the board of directors of a, of the small bank in my little hometown in eastern Kentucky, and I want to disclose that to you because what you're talking about is competition to our faltering loan portfolio. It's it's very difficult for us to find places to spend our you know to to, to take loans. I think it's a great idea. You know, I, I think anything. In, in anything that opens channels that allows the, the 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 small businesses to to get their hands on capital, you know, I always, I tend to approach this from from capital seeking its highest and best use in in these situations and keeping transaction costs down as much as you can so it can find its highest and best use in in these situations. So I don't know a lot about that. You and I have sort of talked about that over a period of time. I I support that. The peer-to-peer lending, you know, assuming that that we do it in the right way, yes, I'm for it. Other questions from the audience? Lydia. Um, you touched on the accredited investor standard a little bit, but I wondered if you could go into that a little bit more. To what extent um, you, it's an important component of investor protection, but to what extent are those rules preventing the um, demand side for these um, securities? Uh, so, so the accredited investor issue, is that what you're talking about? Okay. Uh, this has been, uh, th- th- this is a point of, of debate in, in, in the academic and, and other world as well. Um, accredited investor, uh, uh, removing the, the, the protection of a registration statement from those guys. What registration statements do is they provide investment information. Mandatory, here it is, here's what you gotta, here's what you gotta have. The, 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 the accredited investors, sort of broadly speaking, uh, if you limit your offerings to accredited investors or exemptions around that say you don't have to give them a registration at all. You, they, they have to bargain for their own information. Now, the question is why we, why we, why we don't protect accredited in, investors. Uh, normally, I think you, know, you, you don't protect people, uh, because they have access, cheap access, to investment information. So intrastate offering. We don't protect people who are in the same state because geographic proximity gives them access to cheap information about the company. I mean, that's sort of the the premise of this. Now, what the accredited investor status basically does, it says we're not going to protect rich guys 
from by, by requiring them to get a registration statement, accredited investor, rich guys, people have certain asset or income standards. And then the question is why? Well, they could be dumb and they could be unsophisticated people, but we, we have sort of said the ability to bear the loss means that they got to fend for themselves. You know, they can hire people to help, help them with, with the investment at all. That's a great debate around. I mean, I'm not sure it rises to the level of a great debate. Uh, should we, uh, should we, uh, provide exemptions from registration for wealthy individuals in that, or should we require, uh, that those kind of people uh, that, 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 that the exemption is predicated upon sophistication, you know, at all. So, um, I, I, that's all I can tell you about it. Uh, it, it, it is. I, I'm fairly comfortable in saying that accredited investor makes sense. That is, we don't have, they don't, you don't have to register your securities and provide them with a prospectus. Let them act on their own behalf. Certainly with regard to insiders and institutions, you know, but with regard to wealth as an accredited investor criterion, uh, I'm pretty comfortable with that. So, but other people are not. Just for your remember, Senator Tillis has legislation which would substantially broaden the definition of accredited investor by having specific uh, indicia of sophistication. Uh, including education, professional licensure, and, and that sort of thing, um, that that I think uh, merits, uh, uh, shall we say, seriously looking at. So. Yes, sir. Hi there. Jay Jang with the American Bankers Association. So I wanted to get your sense, uh, get your thoughts on the evolution of capital markets. So, you know, in my estimation, it looks like capital markets looks very different, you know, public versus private than it did, you know, a few decades back. You, uh, one could make the argument that public companies now are really sort of a, a, a holding pen for sleepy, mature, big companies versus a lot of the explosive growth, a lot of the high growth, the startups, where the VC money's going, where, um, you know, sovereign wealth fund money is going. That growth is really seen a lot in the private markets right now with Uber and Lyft. Sure, sure, they're going to go public at a certain point, but really the growth is when they're private. So I wanted to get your thoughts about what the implications are for that where mom and pop investors, people investing in their 401ks can't enjoy the economic growth, really the, the fast economic growth uh, that's really seen in the private markets. And it's really shut out for, you know, one reason or another um, for better or worse. So wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. I, I may defer to David on that. That's really more, David, I thank you. And I'm, I'll provide editorial comment or do you want to? No, I feel free. It's entirely up to you, but the, look, we, we've, I mean, if you want to say something, say, I'm, I'm, God's, we've piled immense numbers of rules on law-abiding firms and their management, uh, in a misguided attempt to go after, um, uh, malevolent actors in our, our capital markets. And asking law-abiding people to spend millions of dollars on lawyers and accountants and investment bankers uh, isn't going to cause 
uh, or, or impede uh, a fraudster in Miami from uh, from defrauding uh, an old person. I think at some level, and the whole structure of of the enforcement apparatus is wrong. They need to focus more on fraud. They need to focus more on on bad actors. Uh, and if, if you look at it, the enforcement uh, side of the SEC has continued to decline. One of the reasons we have so few public companies now is it is so expensive to, to become a public company. It's expensive to stay a public company. Uh, there's extreme regulatory risk associated with being a public company. And uh, CEOs, managers, founders realize that. And so companies are staying private longer. Uh, right after Sarbanes-Oxley, you saw a rush to become private rather than public. Uh, the, the number of public companies uh, has, has declined. Uh, and that's, that's a mistake. It's a mistake in the sense it makes it more difficult for our businesses to raise the capital they need to launch and to grow. But it's also a mistake in the sense that the high rate of returns associated with successful uh, a successful uh, entrepreneurial venture and a portfolio of uh, a diversified portfolio of uh, risky entrepreneurial stocks uh, are now almost entirely accruing to accredited investors. Uh, the public is only able to purchase these securities after uh, the, the game's already been played. Uh, it used to be that public well, companies went public fairly early in their life cycle, so ordinary people could benefit from from their growth and their gains. That's no longer the case, and the reason for that is our regulators and the Congress. And so, I mean, at some level, people ask, you know, what, why the the whole regulatory regime is set up to help the rich get richer and keep the ordinary Americans from being able to benefit from our capital markets. All right. Well, with that, I think we should um, call call it a day. Uh, I genuinely appreciate your willingness to join us, Professor Campbell. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate the audiences, William. And uh, thank you for coming. And we got about fifteen.